Thank you everyone for coming. Um, let me begin with a word of prayer. Almighty God, we give you thanks for your word that you speak to us, that we could hear you today. We pray that um, your spirit would open up our minds and hearts to receive it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so um, we're going through all the books of the Bible systematically, and uh, my intention, uh, my goal is to give you a, a familiar or some kind of taste of each book of the Bible. Um, and in that brief time that we look at each book, uh, hopefully it um, orients you so that you can see the whole structure of the Bible, but also sparks your curiosity so that you would read the Word on your own. Today we uh, are going to enter the rest of the Old Testament. The, these are the prophets. There are 17 uh, prophet books in the Bible. They are divided into major and minor prophets. Um, major and minor refers not to their importance, uh, but to their size, to their length. So there are five major prophets, um, and they are in chronological order. So Isaiah is first. So Isaiah is the first of the major prophets. Um, Daniel is the last of the major prophets. And then there are 12 minor prophets, and they are also in chronological order as well. So um, who are the prophets? So you see the prophets all throughout the history of God's people, but they rise in prominence during the last stages of the kingdoms of Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And the reason for this is because the kings of Israel go bad. They leave the faith, they apostatize, and so the prophets arise to call the people back to repentance. Um, and this is probably why the prophets start to write. Um, for example, you have a lot of prophets like uh, Samuel and Nathan earlier on, but they don't have books attributed to them. But you have uh, the books starting to be attributed to the latter prophets because they're writing these they're writing down their, their call to repentance and the promise of future restoration. So, what were the role of the prophets? The, pro the role of the prophet was to um, proclaim, to bring the word of God to the people. That's what they were doing. And we often think of prophecies as predictions of the future, but actually, other, aside from Daniel, Daniel being the only one who really um, sort of maps out what's going to happen in the future with uh, years and uh, specificity, um, which is why a lot of like prophecy, you know, people who are really interested in prophecy study Daniel. But aside from Daniel, for the most part, the prophets spoke very broadly of a cluster of events that will mark this future renewal for God's people. Uh, the return to the land, the rebuilding of the temple, the return of the king, all of these things are like just this cluster of events and cluster uh, one and the same event. And so they speak broadly of that, of the Messiah, coming of the Messiah. But for the most part, I would like you to think of the prophets as covenant prosecutors. What do I mean by covenant prosecutors? Um, we're referring to the Mosaic Covenant. Remember that God gave to his people at Sinai um, a set of laws, obey and you will live, disobey and you will perish. And so the prophets are coming along like prosecutors and they're bringing the case against God's people. 
you have broken the covenant. You're not being faithful to the covenant. And so they're warning them. Um, they're telling, speaking of exile. And uh, they're calling for repentance. Uh, one more thing before we go on. Um, the mode of communication. So the prophets were coming to a people who were complacent, who were um, not sensitive or not awakened or awake to their, their violation of the covenant. So they were, they were um, hardened and callous. And so the, so the prophets had to awaken the people, right? The prophets were trying to shake them out of their complacency. It sort of reminds me as a, as a pastor when you preach, um, if you feel like you're not getting your point across, you begin to yell, <laughs> raise your volume. So the prophets were being very dramatic. They would, they would use extreme actions, what is known as symbolic action. So a classic example of this is um, the prophet Ahijah goes to Jeroboam because what happens is that the, um, the, uh, the kingdom is going to be split from Rehoboam, who's the son of Solomon, into two kingdoms. So Ahijah goes to Jeroboam, the man who God has designated to be king of northern Israel. And if you read the text, it says that Ahijah takes a new cloak. Now, this doesn't really strike us as that amazing, but you have to understand that in the ancient world, before industrial processes was invented, clothing was extraordinarily expensive, particularly an outer coat, cl uh, uh, cloak. Um, and so this was probably the equivalent of a tailored suit for us, maybe a five or $10,000 item of clothing. So the prophet takes a new cloak, he takes it off, and then he tears it into ten, uh, 12 pieces. And then he gives 10 to Jeroboam, and then he keeps two for himself, and he says, this is what God has done to the tribes of Israel. He's giving you 10 tribes, but two he will leave with the house of David. And it's supposed to shock you. Right? If you were a witness, if you were Jeroboam, you would be shocked. You would be aghast. Why are you destroying this expensive piece of clothing? But this is a way to awaken you to God's message. So uh, oftentimes they not only resorted to extreme actions, but they did these extreme actions in their lives, these dramatic skits with their lives. So for example, you have Isaiah. Isaiah was commanded by God to live naked and barefoot for three years. This is Isaiah chapter 20. You can sort of imagine this. Isaiah is walking around Jerusalem, just naked, right? Just walking around the marketplace, just completely the air breezing through him. And the, symboli the symbolism of that, because Isaiah was preaching all the time, Isaiah was saying, so will happen to you. You'll be carried off in exile, in nakedness and shame. This is what's gonna happen to you if you don't repent. And so all the time, even when Isaiah wasn't necessarily speaking, the people knew Isaiah's message and they watched him walk around naked, right? As a dramatic way to shock you. This is what's happening. Um, Ezekiel was commanded in uh, Ezekiel chapter 4 to build this miniature city out of bricks to represent uh, the city of Jerusalem. He builds miniature siege works and then he lays down inside of his miniature city for 14 months. Um, and then he can only eat meals in which he cooked and prepared um, over uh, uh, human dung, right? And it's to symbolize the conditions of the siege. First of all, he's in agony because he's just laying prostrate. He doesn't get to exercise. He's just physically wasting away. 
and he could only eat unclean food. And so imagine the prophet just writhing in agony, and he's constantly preaching, this is what's going to happen to you. This is coming. Um, the most famous example is Hosea. Hosea, God commands to marry a prostitute to represent uh, Israel as an unfaithful wife. Then you have Jeremiah. Jeremiah is forbidden from marrying to symbolize that Israel is going to be cut off from the land of, of the living. Ezekiel's wife dies at, at, at an early age by the hand of God. And then he's forbidden from mourning as a sign of the shock and the terror of what is to come. So I guess what's my point here? Um, it's not an easy thing to be called as a prophet. <laughs> uh, prophets were specially chosen. They were anointed. Two kinds of people were anointed in the Bible, prophets and kings. Um, and if a prophet came to you and said, I'm going to anoint you as a prophet, you might want to run, right? Uh, the prophets were almost always ignored. They were beaten, imprisoned. Um, they suffered throughout their life because they were being sent to warn God's people during this, these last stages, but the people would not listen. Did you have a question? And it doesn't have any, like, you have to be coming from the house of... That's right, yeah. It, it's not hereditary, unlike the king and unlike the priesthood. So there are three offices in Israel, prophet, priest, king. Prophets were especially chosen by God. Um, they can come from any tribe. Um, sometimes they even came from the Levites, so they were off sometimes ex-priests. Uh, they did in the early stages of the kingdom, like uh, during the time of David and Solomon and so forth, but eventually the priesthood became corrupted. So both the kingship, the two offices of Israel became corrupted, kings and priests, because they were all part of the same like power complex. Um, so you had prophets who were lonely, speaking truth to power. They were lonely people, outsiders, railing against corruption, immorality, warning the people. And so a lot of times the people thought of the prophets as crazies. Whack. I mean, if you see a man walking around naked for three years, you're thinking he's crazy, right? So, um, so that was the lonely role of prophets. Yeah. All right, so let's go to the books now, Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah is by far the, the most well-known of all the prophetic books. Maybe Jonah would be the one exception. Um, it is the most quoted book in the New Testament, second only to Psalms. Um, I think its place as uh, being so beloved in the church is well-deserved. It, it has beautiful language. If you're going to read a single prophet book, read Isaiah. Um, very rewarding experience. Beautiful language of future redemption for God's people. It begins very famously in chapter 40. 1 through 39 is oracles of doom and judgment. Chapter 40 through uh, 66 um, is renewal, comfort, grace. And so it begins, comfort, comfort my people, very famously. Um, he's one of the, he is one of the earliest writing prophets uh, to the southern tribe of Judah during the reign of Hezekiah. And um, typically half of the prophet books are statements of judgment and doom. Um, we're not going to focus them on, on them too much, um, but I did want to start out with Isaiah. So I want us to read a large chunk of Isaiah and his warning, his rebuke, his um, indictment of Israel. So let me read to you Isaiah chapter 1 verses uh, 10 through 17. I want you to hear two um, components of Isaiah's indictment. Number one, he says he, he condemns the people's empty religiosity, right? their empty spirituality, just motion but no heart. 
And then secondly, I want you to see their neglect of social justice. Verse 10, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. He's addressing Israel, by the way, um, the people of God. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? He's talking about all of the sacrifices that are prescribed in the, in the Torah, right? The first five books of the Bible, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed well beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, right? This is the motion of prayer and praise. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. And so you see Isaiah's condemnation. He condemns empty religiosity so that you have to understand that on the surface, the people were still devout, um, but their hearts were far from God. They were praying. They were going to worship services. They were offering sacrifices. And so they weren't doing you know, evil deeds as we might imagine them. They were good little church kids, right? And yet, God says, religion without the heart is vile to him, right? When you simply go through the motions, but your heart is not engaged, if you don't love God, um, then it's hypocrisy, it's, it's vile. And then notice also, not only were they very religious, but at the simultaneously, they neglected to do the requirements of the law. They neglected to take care of the poor, the widow, the orphan. Um, notice the absence of care for the poor. So, uh, so that's the judgment. Um, here's the grace. Isaiah speaks of a coming servant of the Lord. This is the most famous aspect of Isaiah. Um, and this expression, servant of the Lord, is very uh, poignant because Israel was supposed to be God's servant. Um, the people were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. Remember, God said to Abraham, all the families of the world will be, will be blessed through you. Israel was supposed to be a city on a hill, this shining community of justice and truth, but they failed. So, Isaiah says, God is going to send a true Israelite, a true servant who will fulfill his, his mission. And so Isaiah, starting in Isaiah chapter 42, he has a series of four songs about this a mysterious servant of the Lord. And we're going to read the most famous of the songs um, where he describes a man of sorrows. So let me read to you starting at Isaiah 53. Notice that this servant of the Lord is a sin bearer of his people. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 
Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. And so what do you see here, right? You see this principle of substitution. The servant of the Lord is innocent. He's righteous. He has done nothing wrong. And yet he suffers the penalties of sin and rebellion. And through his punishment, through his stripes, we, we are healed. That's the exchange, right? That's the substitutionary atonement. Verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, the servant of the Lord, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He didn't defend himself. He could have. He could have uh, put an end to all of this. This is outrageous. This is wrong. Um, but because he's standing in our place, he doesn't. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So that is Isaiah's vision of salvation. It's a sinless servant who will stand in Israel's place, who will fulfill the law in a way that we could not, and then bear the penalty of the law in a way that we should have, but we could not. So the question, of course, is who is this? This was a major question in um, the, the, the centuries preceding the time of Jesus. Who is this servant of the Lord? And I love this passage in Isaiah, uh, in, sorry, in Acts chapter 8. Um, this is the very question that animates the passage. Let me read it to you. Um, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And then this is what it says. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And a eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? And so what happens in the text? Philip, from that point, uh, shares the good news of Jesus Christ. This is Jesus. Um, any questions about Isaiah? All right, let's proceed. Jeremiah. So Jeremiah is writing a hundred years after Isaiah. Conditions have worsened. Um, Isaiah, Isaiah had a very difficult ministry. He was mostly ignored. He was mostly scoffed at. Yet, he was invited into the court of Hezekiah, one of the last good kings of Judah. He was a major uh, advisor uh, to Hezekiah. Um, but Jeremiah, by the time of Jeremiah, 100 years later, things have gotten terrible. He's never invited to court. He is severely persecuted. We, we call him the weeping prophet because he is a prophet during um, the last four kings of Judah and nobody listens and then he becomes an eyewitness of the siege and the destruction of Jerusalem. And the point I want to make here is that Jeremiah is a long-suffering prophet. He preached to a sin-hardened nation who was prosperous and self-assured Jeremiah's words sounded like madness. It sounded like very much like right now. 
Um, we live in a very prosperous time. Everything is going well. What if some crazy man started saying to us, woe to you, Mexico is going to come and conquer us and you're going to be taken away in chains and in nakedness, we would be like, you're crazy. It's not going to happen. Um, so Jeremiah had an extremely difficult ministry of constant rejection. He uh, ministered for 25 years, constantly preaching. He had only two people who received him positively, two converts, Baruch, his secretary, and Ebed Melech, who was an Ethiopian eunuch in the court. He was universally mocked and rejected. Everyone laughed at him. Everyone thought he was crazy. He was repeatedly imprisoned and beaten. He was constantly threatened with death. One time they put him in the stocks in the uh, center of Jerusalem. Stocks are those wooden things where you place your head and arms and feet. And basically it shames you so that everyone walks around you. They can like pelt you with broken uh, rotten vegetables or jab at you or jeer at you. So he was an object of derision. During the siege, because um, Jeremiah was constantly going around saying, don't fight, don't resist, this is your doom, this is the judgment, he was lowering the morale of the troops. So they threw him into a cistern. A cistern is, is sort of like an underground swimming pool. It's a big hole that they would plaster with waterproof uh, covering with a small opening so that they would store water in case of an emergency. But this was a cistern that had all been used up, filled with mud, so they threw him into the cistern and they sealed it. He sinks into the mud and he's going to die. Um, he's left for dead. And then at the last moment, um, Ebed Melech says, Jeremiah, let me rescue you. Um, not surprisingly, Jeremiah suffered depression, doubt, feelings of abandonment. There are long sections, multiple passages in Jeremiah where he's crying out to God. This is, this, this is all for nothing. He's full of despair and full of doubt. And I love the life of Jeremiah um, because Jeremiah really reminds me that he was called not to success but to faithfulness. Um, his life looked like a failure. At the end of his life, um, he witnessed the, the siege of Jerusalem. I'm sorry, can we uh, turn off the, the heater? It's... I'm starting to sweat. Um, <laughs> um, at the end of his life, uh, he witnessed, after the, he witnessed the siege of Jerusalem, he was taken by uh, some officials fleeing down to Egypt, and he died in Egypt. And so his life looked like a failure. And I, I, I think as believers, as readers of the Bible, it really makes, it challenges us, how do we judge a life? Do we judge a life based on failure or success in conventional notions? Or do we, do we look at their faithfulness? And I think Jeremiah lived an impactful life. He lived a beautiful life, a life of service and usefulness, but not a life of success. And uh, I think we should aspire for faithfulness, but not, not necessarily success. Success is a nice bonus, but faithfulness is essential. All right, so uh, the text I want to read for Jeremiah is his letter to the exiles. Very, very famous passage in the Bible. Um, up until this point, uh, the exiles, I'm sorry, the uh, people of God have been living in a theocracy in Israel, in their own kingdom, but now they are captives. Um, and so how will the exiles in Babylon conduct themselves in this pagan land, right? Um, and I think it's a very relevant text because Jeremiah is giving them instruction. This is how you should live. 
And uh, we also find ourselves in an exile. We're not in our home country, right? We are strangers. We are aliens. We are exiles. This is what First Peter tells us. Um, we're living among unbelievers. We're living in an unbelieving culture. How should we conduct ourselves? So let's listen to Jeremiah, Jeremiah's instructions. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So here's, this is the instructions. Verse 5. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Listen to this. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. This is an astonishing answer. First of all, because he's telling the people that it's not a disaster that they're in exile. It's not the end of the story, but the story goes on. There's a very famous uh, verse that I didn't put there, but Jeremiah 29, 11, where God says, um, I have plans to prosper you, plan not to harm you, right? So the, God's people are, are in exile for a good purpose, and their life continues. And I also want you to, and secondly, I want you to notice the posture of God's people shifts from being in a theocracy uh, in the land of Israel. Now, surrounded by unbelievers, they are to be a holy minority. And rather than um, the two extremes of separating from all the unbelievers so that you can stay pure, don't let them corrupt you, don't let them contaminate you, um, rather than trying to conquer the unbelievers, take over society, reestablish the kingdom of Israel, um, establish dominance over the unbelievers. Instead of those two extremes, Jeremiah tells them to maintain a faithful presence among the unbelievers. Verse 7 is very significant. He says, seek the welfare of the city. The word welfare there is the Hebrew word shalom. If you know this word shalom, shalom means peace, but it means so much more than that. It means prosperity, well-being. It's a very fulsome, powerful word. Yes, Winnie? You know, Solomon took a wife that is non, you know, doesn't believe in God. Yeah, so when he says take wives and, and sons, he's talking about believers. He's not talking about marrying unbelievers. That's confusing because it sounds like, you know, you go into exile. Yeah, so, so marry within the believing community. Okay. Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, so he says seek the welfare of the city, the shalom of the city. So what this means is that um, believers are to work for the common good not just for the good of their own community, but the good of their pagan neighbors. They're to participate in civic institutions. And so this, and we find ourselves in the same position today. We're no longer, God's people is no longer a nation state, but we are dispersed exiles. We're an international holy minority. We're a church, right? So that's our posture. Um, because the the story of Israel is now over in the sense that the land, um, this was always an object lesson. It was always a, a re-dramatization of Adam in the garden. But uh, Israel failed. They, he disobeyed, uh, she disobeyed 
the, com uh, the, the commandment, the test. And so now she is expelled out of the land. And so now the whole object lesson is over. We are still in exile. We're still waiting for the return to the land. We're still waiting for the, the king to return and the rebuilding of the temple. And so we find ourselves no longer pining and longing to be this dominant, majority, domineering condition. We find ourselves always in a position of a minority. So I actually think this situation in the United States is really advantageous. I mean, it used to be the case where America was known as a quote-unquote Christian nation. I always thought that was a bit ambiguous. What does that mean? I don't know if America was ever Christian. But now it is broadly, widely understood that we're transitioning to a post-Christian uh, reality where Christians are going to be a minority. And if you're a believer, that should be a comfortable position for you. Throughout the history of God's people, after the exile, we've always been a minority. And we have a lot of help and instruction how to be a faithful minority. We can read Jeremiah 29, and there are other examples as well. Um, any questions about that? Jeremiah. All right. Let's forge ahead to Lamentations. Um, lamentations, lament, uh, lament is just a big word that means um, a, an expression of deep sorrow. Uh, Lamentations is only five chapters, so it should probably be a minor, uh, minor prophet. But because it's attributed to Jeremiah, it follows immediately after the book of Jeremiah. That's why it's included here. Um, there's no author inscription, but almost everyone universally considers it written by Jeremiah. Uh, Lamentations is an eyewitness account of the siege and destruction of Jerusalem. It's really hard for us to appreciate the trauma of the Jerusalem being uh, destroyed. Um, first of all, there was the religious meaning of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the center, was the, um, was the focal point of all of God's redemptive promises. The temple was there. This represented God's presence with his people. This was the city of David. This is where the king, God's king would sit and reign. And now it's all destroyed. There's the human factor as well. Um, in the ancient world, a siege, see, by the way, the word siege simply means um, when a city has walls, it's just stupid to ram your head against the wall. So you just wait it out. So you surround the city and you wait for them to starve. And then once they're weakened, then you can attack. A siege was terrible. Um, we have a, a lot of ancient accounts of sieges and they were horrific, a horrific experience. And then when the siege collapsed, the city would be just destroyed. The soldiers, you have to understand, ancient soldiers did not practice modern military discipline. So you have to understand the ancient soldiers they're waiting for the siege. They're angry. They're upset. When the city finally falls, they vent their rage, right? So if you ever read the, the account of the rape of Nanjing, Nanking, um, you know the soldiers go in and they just destroy the people. They, they, they rape and loot. And so Lamentations is this really, I think, beautiful piece of ancient literature. It's deeply sorrowful and haunting. So I just wanted to read to you the opening lament. Listen to this. Listen to the language. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How, like a widow, has she become. She who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. And I want to read to you... Um, 
I, I selectively picked a description of the siege conditions that I thought was really poignant. So let me just read them to you. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. So during siege conditions, because there's no food coming in, food becomes incredibly scarce and therefore extremely exorbitantly expensive. So you basically have people who are trading in life savings, you know, treasures to buy morsels of food. Verse uh, 2.12, they, uh, he's speaking about the children, right? Um, in verse 11, he talks about the children. The children in the siege suffer the most of all. They're the most vulnerable. The children cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. Right? And so the children are trying to nurse on their mothers, but there's no food because there's no milk because the mom, the mom is also starving. Um, if you're a parent, to see your children suffer is the worst experience. You would much rather you just suffer. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger, who waste away, pierced by the lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. So he's describing there, the people are reduced to cannibalism. The conditions are so terrible that uh, parents start to eat their own children to survive. So in the midst of that bleak backdrop, we come to Lamentations chapter 3, verses 19 through 24, a word of hope. This is um, a very famous passage. Let me read it to you. Well, starting verse 22 is a very famous passage, but let me back up a few verses. Verse 19, remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. And in verse 22 and 23 is some of the greatest verses, greatest words in all of Scripture. Listen to this. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. These are very famous uh, verses in the Bible. Um, they've been put to song. You know, you see them on posters, right? And rightly so. They're beautiful words. But I think we diminish the glory of them. We take away some of its power by taking it out of that context. That verse is in Lamentations. That verse is in the middle of all of this muck and destruction and terrible death and the prophet Jeremiah he's reflecting on the siege of Jerusalem and he's able to write this right? he says um, they're new every morning right God's mercies great is your faithfulness right? he's reflecting on God's unceasing love even under, under those conditions yes uh, the Babylonians yeah any questions about lamentations if you're feeling sorrowful, if you've, uh, if you, if it, uh, Lamentations is like the jazz, jazz music of the Bible. You can just read Lamentations and, and weep with the prophet and, and feel consoled. All right, um, let's go to Ezekiel. I think Ezekiel is probably, uh, it's kind of a weird statement to make as a pastor, but it's, it's the hardest of all the prophet books in the Bible to read. He has really crazy imagery. Um, 
it's, I think, not coincidentally the most quoted of the Old Testament books in Revelation, right? So Revelation draws from Ezekiel a lot, the imagery of Ezekiel. It's, so it's a really difficult book. I'm not saying you shouldn't read it, but uh, if you're going to read one of the major prophets, read Isaiah first. Um, he, Ezekiel is writing shortly after Jer- Jeremiah. They're almost contemporaries. He follows Jeremiah, like they overlap a little bit. He follows Jeremiah by a few decades. He's a prophet among the community of exiles in Babylon. So he's one of the exiles that goes to Babylon with the people. And the passage I wanted to read, um, it's actually a continuous passage, but I want to break it up into two, is um, Ezekiel 36, which, is, which talks about the new covenant. So what is the new covenant? So I want to I spend some time on this because uh, this is a very significant, beautiful concept in the Bible. So the new covenant is mentioned, in fact, earlier in Jeremiah chapter 31, very famous verse. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Judah and the house of Israel. And then he goes on to virtually say identical things to what Ezekiel says um, here in our passage. Um, So what is the new covenant? And you have to, before you understand the new covenant, you have to understand what is the old covenant. And the Old Covenant is the Mosaic Covenant, given at Mount Sinai. Um, and what was the Mosaic Covenant? The Mosaic Covenant was the Law of God, the Ten Commandments and, and uh, all of the accompanying um, uh, stipulations. And the Law was supposed to make God's people holy. This is what holiness looks like. This is what obedience looks like. However, the Old Covenant failed. Because God's people, even though they studied the law, even though they looked at the law and meditated on the law, it failed to make them holy. And the reason for that is because the law is powerless to produce what it commands. Why is that? And the reason is because the problem is the human heart. The human heart is wicked. The human heart looks at the law of God and does one of two things to it. It either says, yes, I will conform, but out of a self-righteousness, aha, that means I'm better than other people, now God has to bless me. So self-righteousness, or the, the wicked human heart looks at the law and says, you can't, who's, you're not the boss of me, right? This autonomy bias, and so the person runs away um, and disobeys. So the law fails to produce holiness, right? And so because the old covenant failed, um, uh, what is it? Uh, Ezekiel, Jeremiah speaks of a new covenant, and the essential component of the new covenant is the indwelling of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, uh, God will pour out His Spirit onto His people, and the Spirit will change our hearts, will transform our hearts, so that now our relationship to the law is transformed. No longer do we obey out of uh, fear, cowering. No longer do we obey... Um, out of self-righteousness, but now we obey because we love God out of a relationship with Him. And Christ is the mediator of this new covenant. Um, remember in the Last Supper, He said, speaking of the cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He was referring back to the new covenant theology in the Old Testament. His death on the cross changes our relationship to God. So let's read the new covenant. Ezekiel 36 
I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Right? No longer a, a heart that is callous and unfeeling towards God, but now a warm, beating heart that's penetrable, that's, that's sensitive, um, that can be pricked by the Word of God. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. So that's the new covenant. It's this pouring out of God's spirit. It's a, a changed relationship. Um, and then I think what's significant is immediately after the new covenant, uh, Ezekiel talks about this vision that he has of the Valley of Dry Bones. So this is probably the most famous passage in Ezekiel. Um, and I think their connect, uh, uh, the connection, I think, is really um, profound. It shows us that salvation is not a, a matter of human effort. It's not a matter of gradual improvement or moral instruction, but it is like the dead coming to life. <laughs> it's um, this radical one-sided work. The technical term is monergism, one work. It's God alone intervening, coming into us, taking out our heart of stone, reviving us, giving us new life. And that is supposed to make us realize that grace is truly grace. None of us deserve salvation. None of us can say, oh, I believe because I'm just more spiritually insightful than my fellow non-believers. No, you believe because God did this miraculous work on your heart. So let's read the um, Valley of Dry Bones. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones, right? So you imagine this valley full of um, of, uh, of, of these bones scattering, scattered all over the floor, the ground. And he led me around among them. And behold, they, uh, there were very many of, I'm sorry, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live and I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. This is a very encouraging passage, by the way, to preachers. Uh, how do we bring death to life? How do we bring, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, how do we take out hearts of stone and give them hearts of flesh? Prophesy. Preach the word of God. Um, that's how God does it. That's, that's the power of God. Verse 12, Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves. Right? This is resurrection language. O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do this, declares the Lord. We are going to go to that land 
called the new heavens and the new earth, right? So we're still waiting for it. We're waiting for the resurrection. It's not just a vision, it's a reality. And Jesus is the first fruits. All right. Any questions about um, Ezekiel before we go on to uh, Daniel, the last one, the last book? All right. I feel proud. I feel like we're making our progress. <laughs> All right, Daniel. So Daniel is part of the young generation, the first generation who is brought in exile to Babylon. The, the thing with Daniel is that it's both familiar and unfamiliar. Um, the first half, chapters 1 through 6, very familiar. It's sort of a narrative. Um, it's the standard teaching material of Sunday school and VBS. We're all familiar with Daniel and the lion. Uh, the second half, 7 through 12, is much, much, less un much, much more unfamiliar. Um, these are the prophecies of Daniel. This is where Daniel talks about the, ki the coming kingdom of God. And he talks about it with great specificity, like what's going to happen in, in the world events. Um, so the first part is largely about the question of assimilation of God's people. And the second part is about assurance that God is still in control over history. Um, so let me tackle them one at a time. So the question of assimilation, I think, really resonates with us today. Um, and I think it's, it's a good counterpart to Jeremiah's letter to the exiles in chapter 29, right? Jeremiah is saying, don't, with, don't withdraw, but participate in civic life. Pray for, work for the shalom of the city. Um, but does that mean we assimilate? Does that mean that we lose our distinctiveness? Um, because the book of Daniel shows us there was enormous cultural, religious pressure on God's people to lose their identity and to sort of blend in to the surrounding unbelieving culture and to bow down to the idols of that culture. What are the idols of our culture? It's money, sex, power. Um, will we worship those idols? Will we look like and pursue the same things that our unbelieving friends and unbelieving neighbors worship and pursue as well? Or will we be a distinct and holy minority, a strange people, a peculiar people, and, and then resultingly misunderstood, mistreated even perhaps? So this is uh, one story. You have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. By the way, those are Babylonian names. So their names were changed. Their, their Hebrew names were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they're commanded to bow down. They're obeying Jeremiah. They're high officials in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. But then they're put under this uh, pressure. So let me read to you. Uh, because what happens is Nebuchadnezzar builds this golden statue of himself. Um, and the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Right? This is the, the idol right? that every culture, every unbelieving culture will always have an idol. Bow down to this idol. Worship this idol. Show your allegiance to this idol. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. There's always a punishment. There's always a consequence. If you don't, if you don't conform, if you don't assimilate, you're going to be ostracized. You're going to be cast out. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the people's nations and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. 
But what ends up happening is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? It, take, it took enormous courage. Everyone's bowing down and they're standing, <laughs> right? So everyone notices, of course, they're arrested and brought before the king and they're threatened with this punishment. And this is what happens, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have, no, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Incredible statement of faith. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, first of all, God has the power to save us and rescue us out of this situation. And we think he's going to rescue us out of this situation. But even if he does not, we're still not going to conform. We're going to be faithful to our God. Um, and so they maintain obedience and faithfulness in the face of cultural pressure. And so in that sense, they're a good example for us. Um, last passage. Um, this is from Daniel 2, um, so the first part, but it really connects to the second part where he's talking about the kingdom of God. Um, so the question here is, is God still in charge of history? So Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. This is one of my favorite passages in all of the Old Testament, so I'm excited to read it. Let me read it to you. You saw, O king, so this is Daniel telling Nebuchadnezzar his dream. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And so um, he goes on to explain. Wait, did, does he explain it here? Uh, no. So he goes on to explain in another, in another part that this uh, statue... This image represents all the glorious and great kingdoms of, of uh, history, right? He, so he goes on to talk about the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, and so forth, right? All of these fantastic human empires. And then this is what happens. Verse 34, as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, right? This is not a human, human creation, human invention. And it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them to pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image right, grew and grew and became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is a picture of the Messiah and the kingdom of God. And it looks so weak, a little stone, right, that no human being has shaped or, or formed. And it comes down and it crashes, it smashes into these impressive human empires and it turns them into dust and then it grows and it fills the whole earth. That's the kingdom of God. That's what God calls us to participate in, this little rock, right, that doesn't seem like very much um, at first. Any questions? Any comments? Yes. So if um, they were predicting the, 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 the Holy Spirit and the New Covenant and things like that, then why is it that we are not, uh, there's a second coming? Where in the prophets is there a prediction of his coming? Very good question. Um, so uh, 
There's a concept called, uh, that biblical scholars call the prophetic horizon. Um, so when you look out into the horizon, right, and you, you can see in the horizon because it's so far ahead of you, you can see two objects that look like they're the same, right? Let me just try to illustrate it a little bit. So this is the horizon, and you can see two objects next to each other that look like they're equal, that they're equidistant to you, right? But as you get closer and closer and closer to, to the objects, what, what ends up happening is you notice that one, whoops, <laughs> one is closer to you than the other. Does that make sense? But you can only see that because you've approached the event. So the prophets indeed did not speak of two comings of Christ. He, they did not speak of the Messiah coming to deal with sin and then later coming to then finally establish his kingdom, vanquish evil, and so forth. But that is what we now realize from the perspective of the New Testament. This is why the disciples were deeply confused. They don't understand. Okay, you're the Messiah. You're saying you're the Messiah. When are the Romans going to be smashed? And the reason is because Jesus is going to come in two events. Does that make sense? Uh, I guess so. <laughs> um, so is he the one that was to come and break the foot? And, and, uh, yeah, so he's the rock. Yes, yeah, so I think the rock is both Jesus, but it's also his kingdom. It's his church. One, one last question. Yeah. Um, so the way you described the prophets, it sounded like they were, they were all lunatics and mentally ill and all this. And it sounded like, um, you know, homeless and mentally ill people that we have now. <laughs> Very good question. Um, so Jesus is the final word. Um, his apostles is the final word. So part of the answer I would say is there are no prophets. Um, it's a longer discussion and, and issue. I actually have been debating, and I talked about this, right, um, about uh, are there prophets still today? And the answer I would say is there are no more prophets today. Um, that ceased with the first generation of the apostles. So that's part of the answer. The other part is, um, uh, the, the, pro the, the Bible stipulates conditions for how you recognize a prophet. So is their word true? Does it come to pass? Um, and that's how you know. And so, and also the prophets always agree with all the other prophets. Um, there's, a, there's a continuity of message. So for all those reasons, there are crazies who, th who consider themselves prophets, but I think we can safely continue to think of them as mentally unstable. Yeah, Eric. That is a three-part class that I will teach soon. But it's a long, long answer. But I will say this. Um, the reason I, I believe that is because what, what was the pr uh, principal role of the prophets? What were they doing? I wrote it down earlier. Bring the word of God. They were bringing the word of God. Is the word of God complete or is it still an open book with future chapters to be written? It's complete. Do we need prophets anymore? We know it's complete. It's complete because the, the, the word of God can only come from those who are properly appointed. Remember, prophets were always anointed. And so we have 
the writers of the word as the apostolic generation, those that Jesus commissioned, but the commi- the, those who Jesus commissioned cannot then go, go and commission themselves. They don't have any authority. Only the Lord can commission. And so only the first generation, the apost- apostolic generation, wrote the New Testament canon. The canon is closed. The New Testament is complete. We have the word of God in all of its fullness. We don't need any more prophets. We have something better than the prophets. We have the word of God. We don't have to see a naked man. (laughs) All right, let me close quick prayer. Thank you, Lord, for this lesson. Amen.